So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very thrilled. I have to make a personal confession. This is one of my favorite topics in Hildebrand. So I'm quite excited that I get to talk to you about the heart um, and the role of the heart and will in Hildebrand's vision of love. Now, as John Henry suggested, and because it's such a central topic and because it's not clear how many of you also have um, a background in Hildebrand, I will take the time maybe to fill in just a few more pieces than um, we find just in the text, but then we will, we will be mainly focusing on the text. Beginning with that, um, just so that philosophically speaking you understand what a breakthrough or how special what Hildebrand is saying about the heart is, I thought I'd give you maybe a little bit of, and of course I'm not going to do it justice, but kind of a, a summary overview. <clears throat> so feelings in general don't hold a central place in philosophy. I mean, Aristotle at one point mentions feelings, interestingly enough, in the Nicomachean Ethics, and says that they're important for virtue. So he says virtue is incomplete without the appropriate feelings. Very interesting, but kind of leaves a statement hanging, doesn't develop it much further. Um, then you find spurts of it a little bit, but for the most part, though, the history of philosophy, I think feelings um, are relegated sort of to a more subhuman realm. They're also oftentimes looked down upon as something that's dangerous. It's not characteristic of man. So man is most often, most generally defined in terms of reason and will. So in most of the definitions in the history of philosophy, that's what is sort of central. And yes? I think, as a comment, a critical comment to Hildebrand, I think that in general, um, there are certain moments when it is a, it's a little bit dissatisfying when, he, when he's critical to sort of people in the past in history, um, as in he doesn't fully, I, my sense is, and I, would, I think that we're in agreement on this, he doesn't fully do them justice. Thomas, maybe most especially, but um, I think even with Aristotle and Plato, there are moments when he captures very well, I think, what they're saying. But I think there are also moments where um, perhaps sort of that in-depth kind of analysis or an in-depth understanding of the full picture of what they're saying is, is perhaps lacking. So I think that that could definitely, certainly be raised as a criticism to Hildebrand. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so nonetheless, even despite the fact, I think that in Thomas also, you find it in affectivity, 
I would say in general, um, it, for the most part, you, I mean, there is this sort of sense that one gets that feelings, the passions, etc. And, 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 and again, they're not quite distinguished in the history of philosophy very well, oftentimes, but that they pose somehow a threat, particularly to reason and will. So they have the tendency to obscure reason. You know, you fly into a rage and all of a sudden, I mean, you're blind with anger or you're blind with this madness and you're not thinking properly or that they somehow manage to bind the will. So they're seen, I think, very often as something that we need to um, be wary of. Yes, we need to... And, and love, I think, as a result, then oftentimes gets put more and more into this... this um, it gets subsumed under the will. Of course, as Hildebrand also says, in a very broad sense. But so love becomes more and more a matter of the will also. And the discussion of affectivity and love is not as rich as um, you will find it here. Perhaps here there's an overemphasis, and we'll discuss that today. But in any case, um, there's an interesting shift, just again by way of a little bit of background in the 18th century, because David Hume all of a sudden restores affectivity in a most interesting way. So David Hume says that we can't know value, we feel value. And so he says that when I think murder is wrong, it's not because I know or I understand something about the murder, it's because I feel it to be wrong. Yeah? And so if there, so remember, it's, it parallels Frankfurt. Frankfurt says that, we, that, that the will or that love, yes, endow something with value. Hume would say the feelings endow something with value. Yeah? And so it, it comes up, of course, rationalists then respond to that, and so forth and so on. Now, it, Hildebrand is not the only one in the last century. So in the last century, all of a sudden, affectivity just bloomed. It took a central position in a lot of philosophical agendas. And so you'll find it throughout in various streams of philosophy. Yeah? So Hildebrand does not stand alone by talking about the affectivity, he is maybe one who emphasizes the heart the most, but feelings come back. And it's very interesting because I think what intrigues people in the last century is they say feelings are important because if we have no feelings, imagine not having any feelings, imagine that we were completely cold and indifferent, what would happen? What would we lose? We would lose... If you were completely cold and indifferent, imagine, you're seeing human trafficking, you're seeing pornography, you're seeing prostitution, you're seeing men beating their children or sexually abusing their children, and you're left completely cold. Or, or, or also in the face of you know, marriage or in the face of a new life, you're left completely cold and indifferent. What are you losing? What do emotions give us access to? Value. Values. So basically, in the last century, this connection between if we had no feelings, the problem would be that we would have no access to value. That somehow feelings are a special, not the only, but a special, and it, most importantly, a primary for us human access to value. Think about, and I was so struck with this um, with regards to my children. I mean, my son, I'm so struck when Aristotle says man is a rational animal. And I realize that that rational, <laughs> that takes a long time, intellectually speaking. But he, I mean, he feels the goodness of the mother, or he feels the love. Do you see? 
his primary access somehow to value is certainly very emotional because that's, I think, the primary way that children, that we as children, humans as children, experience the world. And so, basically, feelings reveal, it was held, the axiological contours of the world. The axiological contours of the world. So we would lose these value contours if we completely deadened feelings. Very interesting discussion today in a time when we're not just deadening feelings, but we're flattening feelings. Yes, because we live so much in an age, especially I think in the United States, of this kind of sentimentalism, which is this deadening and flattening, reducing of feelings. In any case, one of the people very close, of course, to Hildebrand, Shaler, um, his mentor, his personal friend, etc., he, of course, speaks extensively about feelings, particularly in reaction also to Kant, um, who's all about reason, etc. And um, he, his analyses are very rich. Hildebrand obviously draws on them. But Hildebrand takes things a step further. So what I really appreciate in Hildebrand, and I would say that Hildebrand, despite all of the literature that you find in affectivity, in the last century really stands out as making perhaps some of the deepest and, the, and, the, and, and some of the richest contributions to the discussion on affectivity, as we'll see today. So, for one thing, right, Hildebrand, Hildebrand always takes issue. He says, the problem with people when they discard feelings on the basis of, you know, you fly off the handle in rage, or that, you know, feeling, like for example, you feel envy even though your sister is getting married because you're not married or something. I mean, all of these inappropriate feelings. He said, the problem is, is when we begin with a disorder and judge a faculty or judge something on the basis of a disorder, we're doing the thing an injustice. And he says, we don't do that with reason and we don't do that with will. Let's look at reason. We have plenty of disorders in reason. And we would simply throw reason out the window if we looked at all the error and all the confusion and all of the sort of logical problems that we have now. Or the will. I mean, think about the moral deformity. If we began there, we would be discarding will and reason as much as we would the heart, yeah? And so his whole point is, let's look at affectivity proper. So just as Zizulas does point out, he looks for the essence of things, so he's looking for the essence not just of love, but also of affectivity and of the heart. A second problem that Hildebrand has is the problem of equivocation. So he very, you'll find this throughout his work, he says one of the biggest problems in philosophy is equivocation. It's when we use one word to mean very different things, right? And so he says one of the difficulties in the discussion on feelings and affectivities is that we haven't made enough distinctions. Um, I remember one time, and I believe Jules was there, there was a talent show, and uh, the suggestion was that instead of having a movie called The Terminator, yes, we should have a movie on a philosophical level called The Distinguisher, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, I mean, it, it can be extremely tedious at the time. It deterred me definitively from philosophy. But at the same time, it's so important because you realize if the distinctions aren't made, as tedious as they may be, so much is lost in the process. And so he begins in the chapter that you had to read, and he makes these important distinguishes between what he calls essentially different kinds of feeling. So he, it's very rich, and he mentions many things. We're going to stick with the three main classes of feelings that he distinguishes, which are what? What are the three main classes of feelings? that he talks about in the reading, in the heart, that you had to read? Yes? Oh, I thought that was a hand. <laughs> I know you could answer this question. <laughs> yes, Kevin? There's bodily feelings, there's psychic feelings, and there's spiritual Very good. So he makes a distinction between bodily feelings, psychic feelings, and affectivity, more particularly he calls it 
spiritual yes, feelings or spiritual affectivity. What's the difference? What's the, do you remember? What's sort of the, the, the main difference between these three classes of feelings? And again, I'm opening it up to all of you. Yes, I know. Yes? Very good. So he uses a term intentional. So he says, which are the feelings that are intentional? Spiritual. The spiritual feelings are intentional feelings. Now, do we all understand the term intentional? It does not mean what we use in common everyday language. It doesn't mean to do it on purpose. Yes, It's a philosophical term that he's very familiar with because it comes from the phenomenological tradition. And so intentional means... Yes? It means more than having that meaningfully related to an object. So intentional, these feelings are, they don't just have an object, but they're meaningfully related to an object. Yes? So bodily feelings and psychic feelings, yes? So like moodiness, etc. These are caused, but not intentional, he says. There's no meaningful direct relation to the object. As a matter of fact, we don't even have to know the object. We don't have to cognize the object. So for example, I can be tired, or I can simply have a migraine. And I don't need to know the reason. If I know the reason, if I know the cause, maybe that will help me deal with things. But I don't, do you see, the, the feeling arises whether I know the object or whether I've cognized it or not. There's no meaningful relation between the two. It simply arises. It's a kind of a state in me. Yeah? And so this, this difference is so important. But spiritual affectivity, so the first characteristic is that they're intentional. Yes? But that's not the only characteristic that sets them apart. What else are spiritual affections? What, what's the other thing that sets them apart? They're intentional and, yes? So, again, they're, not, they're non-material. Hence, he uses the term spiritual. So spiritual here does not mean religious, yes? Um, but geistic in the sense that it's um, it's uh, it's something immaterial, yes, um, and, and 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 he hones in on it even more. And I think this is one of the I really appreciate this contribution of Hildebrand's in general throughout his work. He says they're not just intentional, but they're personal. They're responses, so it's a personal stance to something. This is a beautiful thing that Hildebrand really goes in depth. He's not again the only one, but he really works on this um, importance of especially inner stances. Um, and he talks about them as a kind of a high point of personal acting. Yeah, very intriguing, I think, for today's society because we live so much in that kind of reactionary. Like we're very react. We've be- we've we've sort of been reduced to reactionary beings. And and Hildebrand really calls sort of the calls to our attention the importance of responding. Yes, cognizing and then taking a stance, uh, responding on the level of intellect, will and then also now hearts today. That's what we're focusing on. Yeah? So this is something, is a key background distinction that I think plays into it. Yes? Yeah, well, you can make a link back to the discussion of Frankfurt yesterday and say that yes. these uh, yes. uh, uh, so-called spiritual or personal affections are motivated and not caused. That concept of motivation and its contrast to natural causality captures a lot of what you're after here. Exactly. So, so here you see how Hildebrand would discuss and debate with Frankfurt. Yes, and he would say 
not everything is caused, but there are certain things that are motivated. So how would he debate that? For example, think of yourself. Yes, do you ever get up one morning and you just simply tell your roommate, if you have a roommate, I'm angry. Why? I have no idea, but I am just angry. Or I'm in love with what or with who? I have no idea, but I'm in love. Do you see? Hildebrand says that makes no sense. You can't have a feeling like this without an object. You see, the anger arises in the face of not just an object in cognizing a neutral fact, but cognizing something important, negatively or positively important in the object. So when I'm angry right, at the man beating his wife, I'm not just cognizing the neutral fact, man beating wife. I'm cognizing something that's negatively important, a disvalue. A man is doing something he ought not be doing, and that is provoking my anger. You see? And similarly also with love. Love is being... It, it, so, so affectivity is a response. It's motivated not by something neutral, but by something that stands out as important. Something that... And, and remember, Hildebrand distinguishes between, between three kinds of importance. So re remember equivocation? the whole deal that he has with equivocation, one of his big grievances with the history of philosophy, he says, is we have abused and overused the term good and value, right? Especially in America. Good value, good hair. <laughs> God is valuable. <laughs> I mean, there's a big difference, right? Um, ice cream, gelato in Italy is good, you know, and uh, spousal love is good. So his point is then, and he really, really, I think, offers such an insight. He says... First of all, let's just rethink the term. Let's use the term important as opposed to neutral. Yes, And then he comes up and he, he really leaves room for the, I think, the, the breadth and the width of tradition. He says there are subjectively satisfying. Those are importances that do depend on me. There's the objective good for me. It is objective. There's something in the thing. But it is also has a friendly, eminently friendly relationship to me. It is good for me. And then finally, there are importances that are intrinsic, they're inherent to the thing, they're entirely independent of me. So, I've, I've made a lot of distinctions here, but the point is simply, affectivity is, so spiritual affectivity for him is intentional, meaning it is intention, it is meaningfully related, yes, and that it is motivated by not neutral things, but by things that are important in some way, positively or negatively. And within the importance, he says there can be three kinds of importance. Of course, for love, the most important importance, as we discussed yesterday, is the importance of intrinsic value. Yeah? Um, and also, relating back to our discussion, so Dr. Federica yesterday made the point of, the, so in Harry Frankfurt, we don't find that personal dimension, yes? We don't find that personal, it's almost nature taking its course. And there's that, not that meaningful relationship with objects that we'll find and we'll discuss even more thoroughly today. Yeah, sorry, Robert. We're going to get to this, but he also makes an important distinction within spiritual affectivity yes. between the responses, which you mentioned, but there's also this interesting being affected, which is mm -hmm. a more receptive, um, it's highly intentional, highly spiritual, but we're not, when we feel, we're not just responding. Sometimes we're actually almost in a more quasi-cognitive way. We're receiving the object or the value of Yes. Thank you, actually, because I was not going to necessarily bring that to the fore, but it is very important. So he distinguishes between 
in spiritual feelings, like you said, between the intentional, so they're all meaningfully related. Some are responses and some he calls, there is a spiritual activity where we are affected, we are touched deeply. Something moves us, yes, it moves our heart somehow. And he talks about this in terms of a very deep kind of union. The object reaches in somehow and it's able to penetrate and to touch us at the very core of our being. And that, he says, is a very legitimate and very important. As a matter of fact, it would be, imagine the following, if we were not touched by certain things, this would be very problematic for Hildebrand. Yes? Um, there would be a deficiency if I weren't touched for, for, by the loving act of my child, for example, or by the loving gesture of a spouse, or by, you see, if I, if I weren't moved to tears, if I, weren't, if I didn't experience deep contrition, those things where it affects me, my sin. Yes? I'm not just then, I'm also taking, making a, an effective response, but where I am somehow touched deep within. Yes, so thank you. All right, so um, now, the heart for Hildebrand is the center of spiritual affectivity. Yes, it is, so the heart is, is that which constitutes sort of the core of affectivity. And now he makes a statement that is, really very revolutionary. I think it, it, it's quite shocking at first because the, the heart for him is not just the core and the center of affectivity, but it is also the core of the person, our very being. He even begins the chapter by saying, it is our very soul in some sense. Yes, he, he at one point, so it is, and he, he then has that chapter that you had to read or that you've all prepared as the heart as the real self. Very intriguing sort of analysis, which I think revolutionizes everything in, in anthropology in some sense, yes? Um, our, 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 our personalist conception of the human person, uh, our, our conception of the human person is radically altered in and through what he's suggesting here, if what he's saying has validity. Um, now, he, um, he says, so, he, so again, just to, the, the, the weight of it, he says the heart, more than the will and more than the intellect, are what we would call the soul of the person. Not discluding the others. Is, so he's never trying to downplay the, reason of, uh, the, the role of reason or will. Never. But he's simply trying to say that in the heart we find a special part of our being. We find a special aspect of our being. And it's very intriguing, and I think very convincing, yes, when he um, makes this argument from love, right? And, and there's that beautiful passage we could probably even um, turn to and read together where he says, let's see, I just need to find the page really quick. The heart is it's right on the first page of the heart is the real self. Chapter 8, the heart is the real self, page... 67. Now, again, to do him justice and not to overlook something that's very important, he says, in the moral realm, the will is the voice of the true self. Yes? So in the moral realm, it is my will that commits and defines and determines my real self. Do you see? It's not, it's not enough. It is not sufficient to simply have the feeling. I have to will something. Yeah? But he says, in other domains, it is the heart. And then he brings this very, I think, powerful, very simple way of, um, of, of 
illuminating this. He says about the second, so I'm in the second paragraph, six lines from the bottom. The heart is here. You have it? The heart is here. Yeah? The heart is here, not only the true self, because love is essentially a voice of the heart. It is also the true self insofar as love aims at the heart of the beloved in a special way. The lover wants to pour his love into the heart of the beloved. He wants to affect the heart, to fill it with happiness, and only then will he feel that he has really reached the beloved, his very self. Furthermore, when we love a person and long for a return of our love, it is the heart of the other person which we want to call ours. As long as the other only willed to love us and merely conformed his will to our wishes, we would never believe, we should never believe that we really possess his true self. Much as the conformity of his will to our expectations, his friendly looks and the attentions dictated by his will may touch us, from a moral point of view, we would yet feel that he escapes us, that his true self is not ours. As long as we feel that the benefits he bestows on us, his considerations and his sacrifices are dictated only by a good and generous will, we know that we do not really possess the beloved because we do not possess his heart. I find it very intriguing because I find in our experience this very true. That some, well, Again, a little bit of background, very interesting. So, you know, theology can so enrich, through the discoveries of theology can so enrich, of course, philosophy. Well, I think what led him to this was the sacred heart tradition in the Catholic Church. And he always wondered why the sacred heart? Why do we have such an veneration to the sacred heart, to the immaculate heart of Mary, the sacred heart of Jesus? Why not to their mind or their intellect? Why not to their will? And somehow I think that really what struck him here is that the heart gives you precisely that special access. You're appealing to that part of Christ, yes, which is most intimately His. And we, we all, we, I think really this is deeply embedded in our experience because when I want to know someone, I don't try to figure out what they think or how they think, at least not only that. right? I, I don't necessarily go and try to figure out what they've willed or what they want to will. But I really want to know where their heart is. I want to know what is in their heart. Yeah? And so I think that Hildebrand here touches on something very key. Um, now, of course, this has huge implications because if this is true, then we would have to rewrite the definitions of man. Right? We would have to say that man is not only rational and not only volitional, but he is deeply effective. Yes? And as a matter of fact, not to give it, but, but there would be a kind of a centrality of affectivity. I'm not saying a priority, because again, Hildebrand, and he, he does, I think, sometimes not so clearly, but very implicitly throughout his work, he will, he will show the very deep interrelations. I'll mention maybe a few things about that between reason, will, and heart, where he tries to show how interconnected. He, he very much is, um, he resists any attempt to try to sort of categorize them and separate them in some fashion, right? He says most of our experiences involve all these faculties, these centers. So they're, they're centers in man, yeah? And somehow that in this particular respect, the heart is the most intimate and perhaps the deepest center of man, yeah? Yes? I mean, you, you kind of were answering it there, but it seems to be like such a radical shift in anthropology because like affectivity and emotions 
traditionally in the Thomistic and Aristotelian traditions are seen as like something we share with animals. Like that's the lower parts of the soul. Like what defines us as humans is our rationality. That, that's what distinguishes us from them. It seems like a radical shift, you know, in back down into a different part of the soul and saying the heart of who we are who defines us as humans is our affectivity, but then animals share that as well. They, they don't have reason, uh, but they do get angry or, well, I don't know about falling in love, but they, they, <laughs> they get sad or scared and stuff like that. They mm -hmm. are, like, it, like, it just seems like such a radical shift from everything that has come before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think that there would be a radicality in the shift of focus, and I think that then now the task would be to do justice to individual philosophers to see... I, because again, right, and it's, it, I, you know, I very much resist this idea that one person has the truth and then others have gotten it completely wrong. Usually if you have a deep thinker, you find in them many sort of, I mean, though it may not be spelled out, you know, it's also like Frankfurt, I think that you, you have these intimations of something that they sense. Yeah? And so, I mean, one would really have to systematically go through philosophers then and see how each philosopher would be in dialogue to Hildebrand what maybe they've appreciated about it. But I think that what Hildebrand does successfully do, I would grant him this, I think, is that he successfully is able to articulate it in the most clear fashion that I have at least found thus far. And that he's most successfully able to, um, to make distinctions that are helpful in sorting through, yes, this whole plethora of feelings or this whole plethora of these many things that can so easily be equivocated. Yeah? I mean, he does, for example, mention in the chapter that we read, passion. His suggestion is that, because many modern philosophers talk about the passions, yeah? and not just in a subhuman way, but he, but he would suggest, and it depends, are we open to the suggestions? He would, you know, he would make the suggestion that passion is more appropriately used for, for example, the strength of a feeling, etc. And, and so, I mean... Again, it would be now a matter of dialoguing. So I don't want to downplay at this point anyone because we don't, we're not doing, we're not focusing on anyone else. I'm trying to focus here specifically on Hildebrand. I do think it would change anthropology tremendously. Um, it would change our sort of understanding of the human person. It would have to deeply sort of change many things about the way that we talk also about the human person. And I think it would be much richer as a result. Yes? Yes. reacting to a very modern conception of reason, right, where reason is calculative, and that's all it is. Um, and that maybe there's a, a more classical sense of reason that's, that's broader, right, where, where reason is, is our passageway to reality, right, and it, and it incorporates enough, right, both sort of a contemplative looking, right, um, and, and also the, the calculative part. So I wonder, would you speak about what he means by reason? I think that Hildebrand, and I'm going to be corrected by my um, <laughs> my professor is here. Um, it's very intimidating yesterday to have two of them in the room. But um, I, I think that Hildebrand has as broad a notion of reason because affectivity is rational. It's co there's a cognitive aspect of reason. But he, so he would distinguish between intellect and reason. Mm -hmm. And intellect would be sort of that more calculative, analytic, would that be right, um, faculty of man. Or, yeah. But, I mean, so in some sense, and of course... I mean, this is where it gets tricky, and this is where words break down, and this is where distinctions are helpful because they show us they show us 
differences, but at the same time there is so much similarity, right? At one point, for example, he says, will, in some sense, all the centers of man, of course, are free. We could have no affectivity in the spiritual sense if we were not free. We could have no reason without freedom, do you see? So, I mean, there's a broad sense in which, of course, it's all-encompassing in some sense, um, reason and will in particular, which is why they've played, I think, such a central role. I'm not sure that could be said in the same way of affectivity. Um, so, in some sense, you could say the, the weightier two um, aspects or centers of man in that sense might be, you know, this rational and this volitional dimension. But I do think that um, affectivity has a different, like, it's a differently weighted importance in the whole sort of constellation of man or that which comprises the entirety of man. Have I done Hildebrand justice? Yeah. Not no, yet? You're doing fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Now, yes. And so I think this is where also anthropology and ethics would touch, right? Where he would say, in some sense, man is not, or the, the, pers the human person is not just a being who knows the good or who can will the good, but who should rejoice and delight in the good. And if we do not rejoice and if we do not delight, if we do not have this also effective yes, um, relation to the good, then there's something still defective. There's something still deficient. There's, it doesn't mean to say that there's not a value and that there's not an importance to the other two, but that there's a kind of a deficiency nevertheless. And so he would call man to live, I mean, on all three levels to the fullest, of course. That's the ideal, right? To be as always, I mean, to be ever more consciously um, aware, rationally, to, I mean, intellectively, to will ever more sort of from our center, yes, to respond ever more deeply, and also to, to um, relate to the world also with this deep, a deep, true sort of sense of affectivity, yeah? Um, it, it, now, the difference, perhaps, very briefly between, I mean, the will, he would say, or one reason why he resists the idea that, particularly love, which for him is the most, remember, in, his, um, in the chapter in Nature of Love that you had to read for today, that you prepared for today, he calls love the most effective value response. So, he says there's an effective plenitude in love. There's, I mean... We have many effective responses, yes? But that in love, there's a kind of an effective fullness there. So it is the most effective response in some sense. Um, and it, so it involves the heart and it involves the person there also on this new and different level because the person is so, in this, in this sense, involved in the affectivity, yeah? shares him or herself so much in and through this effective kind of response. And he says, you see, the problem with saying that love is a matter of the will is that this affectivity, this affective plenitude that is so rich to love, 
is missing. Um, it, it can't be controlled by the will. The whole point of the will is that it can control, it can will, it can, it can, it, um, it can, it, it has this, so it's the queen or the king of action, if you masculinize or if you feminize it. I am always confused exactly what we should do with the will. But in any case, um, that this you don't find in affectivity. So there's a distinction between these responses, even though they flow, so, and they're so often so intimately connected. Yeah? Uh, let me maybe really briefly, because it brings us to another important point, uh, say something just about the cooperation of the three, so how they interplay with one another. Oh, yes. Yes, just maybe one thing mm -hmm. before you yes. uh, go into that new topic, too. Margaret's question about the sense of uh -huh, reason. Yes. I think uh, it, it's, it's definitely not limited to calculative or instrumental uh, reason. It, uh, in a sense of reason, that would encompass philosophy uh, and the understanding of the essences of things and uh, even uh, the natural knowledge of God and proof and uh, all the work that's done in metaphysics. So it's not that instrumental notion of reason which is hostile uh, to that more abundant sense of reason. But even reason taken uh, with that greater, more traditional breadth still forms a certain contrast to these uh, promptings of the heart and the heart of the person that resonates in, in that. Just mm -hmm. a footnote. Thank you. But, uh, so much better now than trying to get back to it later. <laughs> um, okay, so, we, and, and, and linking right to this, because it's very important now, that, that connection, that cooperation between um, between these three faculties in man. You know, affectivity, it's not that Hildebrand would say, you know, just because he elevates and he, and he shows the dignity of affectivity in some sense, or this value of affectivity, it's not as though he's trying to say that all affections are appropriate or inappropriate. On the contrary, that becomes an ethical task of man. So this is another interesting implication. For Hildebrand, we are clearly responsible for affections. Yes? And he says, affections can be clearly disordered and they must, they should be ordered. Right? So he makes this, do you see, and I think that this is very intriguing, especially to us today, because so often our feelings are kind of our guidelines, and we simply think, well, because we feel this way, therefore, yes, it is okay, etc. And Hildebrand resists that entirely. He simply didn't want to start with the disorders, but now he, he does go back and he attends greatly to these disorders, and he, I think, would suggest that there are three ways in which we can order our affections. So the first one is, of course, reason. We have to always use also our reason, yes? And so for, for Hildebrand, the disorder, any kind of disorder always means an imbalance, right? The disorder means that our response is not appropriate to whatever importance we're responding to. So for example, my child, later on, I'm going to be very rich. I will have sweet cars. Yes? He crashes my Jaguar. And then he comes home and he tells me this, and I'm like, get just enraged. How could, you, how could you damage my car? And I never ask him if he's okay. Now, well, this is a disordered response. Yes? Because what is more important, this piece of metal, however beautiful, or my son and his safety and his life? Do you see? So. We have to order, we have to give the appropriate what is due as to the importance. 
also with our affections. And reason here is very important. So for example, if I am madly in love with somebody who um, is not deserving of this love or who is somehow destructive also, like is, is objectively harmful for me, etc. I mean, and, and do you see, my reason can help me to order my affections. It can help me to sort through this. I need to, I think this is a particular cross of women, incidentally. Um, I think women tend to live more on the level of the heart and that intuition of the heart and men tend to live more on the level of the rational, yes? I mean, this is, I don't like to usually speak in terms of generalities, but my experience has been that my husband and I can have a discussion for two hours, and I will have had that conclusion from the beginning, and then he will have spent the next two hours rationally trying to work it out and come to the same conclusion, yes? But this is not to belittle, <laughs> this is not to belittle either, because both are important, and as a matter of fact, one of the greatest criticisms that my father, mind you, again, he was a philosopher, told me, he said, your reason is so rusty. <laughs> he said, it's atrocious. <laughs> he said, you have such effective intuitions, but you need to understand <laughs> and be able to articulate. So it's a particular importance, and the point is simply that reason can help us to, to order. Now, the will. And this, was a t this is part of our topic today. The will in Hildebrand is very intriguing, yes? Um, and a little problematic in Hildebrand because he limits his notion of will tremendously. So for him, will is something at first. He changes it later. I don't know if you're familiar with his posthumous work, um, the Moralia. He had a big fight with one of his disciples um, or one of his students and um, almost came to this enormous clash because of it, because a student disagreed with him. And then he put in, he reworked his notion, but it's a very unsatisfactory reworking. Of course, it's posthumously <laughs> published, but also because it's not very extensive. It doesn't show all the implications of what this change would mean. So he limits the will to, to states of affairs that we can, um, that we can realize, that, we, that, that are not yet real. Now you see... If I limit the will to this, then clearly love can't be a matter of the will, right? Because when I love a person, that person actually ex exists. That person is actually already really there. I'm not bringing that person into existence. I'm not willing them into Do you see? So he sets himself up, of course, for having to put the love into affectivity or having to sort of weight love so much in, in, in the center of affectivity, yeah? That said, I think that Hildebrand himself is very ambiguous about will. Yes? And this was the criticism of his student. He says, implicitly, you have such a richer notion of will. For example, in the reading, he calls it free. He's actually, there are many paragraphs in him too. I went through the work again yesterday where he's not clear. He's not always systematic. He doesn't always say just freedom, but sometimes he does say free will. Yes, And so... He does give and relegate an incredibly important um, power of freedom or free will in the broader understanding, maybe his later understanding, over ordering the heart. What, what does he suggest? Tremendous. What, what, what does he say? What can the will do? What can freedom do? So, for example, I'm envious because my sister is engaged. I don't know why I keep mentioning this. My sister's not engaged and I've never been envious. <laughs> But I guess <laughs> it seems to be a common problem here. It's stupid all of my students. <laughs> you find envy in the face of, I don't know, however that may be. So in any case, I have this feeling, this affection, yes, 
in the face as a response to hearing about this very happy event because they're both delightful people and they will be wonderful. What can freedom do? How can freedom now come into play? Yes? Very good. So you disavow, he says, that feeling. Ladies and gentlemen, he, this is not a repression. Very important. And Hildebrand is so emphatic about this, right? It's not a repression. So he says what we have to do is we have to face it head on, not bury it somehow, right? And we have to take a stance to it and not endorse it, yeah? And that somehow if we do that, what we can do is we can ultimately decapitate this wrong, disordered feeling. And this is, this is really, I mean, even on a natural level, if you did not believe in the sinful or fallen state of man, um, Hildebrand says that you would have an inclination of it because the problem, he says, with disordered feelings is if they are left to themselves, they spread, they're poisoned, and they grow. Right? It's very different with appropriate feelings. So when I have an appropriate affection, then afterwards I'm also supposed to do something. I'm also supposed to take a stance of the will. I should always also use freedom. Freedom can never be separate. Like it always has to also respond to affectivity. So what do I do when I have an appropriate feeling? Like I love my spouse, for example. I'm in love with them. What does, what does, how does freedom now take a stance? What's the other thing? Disavowing is to negative, to disordered feelings. What do we do to appropriate, to ordered feelings? We, we sanction them. Yes. We bless them. We, we say yes to them. And it's only when we sanction them, he says, through freedom, that we actually make them our own. It is only then that we can actually, we can actually make a claim to them. Otherwise, they're somehow, they're not quite my own. Do you see? So you see the important relation between the, the, the two. And then thirdly, this is a very intriguing again because I think completely overlooked today at least in, in education and in, in upbringing of children, we can thirdly do what? Do you remember? We can... I know it's early in the morning. We can... The third one, the third stance of freedom, we can... So that's to sanction them. Right? So that's when we, when we join our yes. We, we actually then take a stance of freedom. Yes? We can indirectly influence, he says, affectivity. We can have an incredible freedom, he says, has an incredible power. I can't control a feeling, but I can certainly influence the feelings. Yes? Affectivity. So I can't will yes, to, for example, um, to, 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 have, to rejoice or to delight in art, but I can indirectly influence it. And so, for example, I think that, take, take this importance, he says, I mean, think about when we are constantly, it's, it, it, when, we feel our, when we fill our minds with trashy, flat books, trashy, kitsch movies, or, you know, we, we, we're in the gutter for the rest of our life, how are we supposed to have noble feelings? How are we supposed to have deep feelings? It's impossible, do you see? I can influence my feelings. And so I think that a third way to order feelings that's implicit, he doesn't actually, I think, and to my knowledge, and you may disagree with me, he, I don't think he ever clearly makes that distinction or that connection, but it's certainly, I think, throughout all of his work, beauty, I think, is the third way to order 
the affections. And here he's very Aristotelian, and if you have ever had the pleasure of reading C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, which you have not had the pleasure, I insist that you subject yourself to this pleasure, because it is a great pleasure. But beauty, you know, Aristotle said, and, and this, this goes back, I think, to a question that you had had yesterday, Margaret, where you had said, well, what about the person, right, who somehow doesn't understand these values or who doesn't have this access that I have, right? And then you had raised, well, that's part of the problem is that it's not just a matter of reason. It, it, there's also this temperament, there's this character that Aristotle is very heavily, um, he has a heavy focus on. And Aristotle says, the two things that you can do is you start young, so you take them when they're young, and you expose them to beauty. You don't start with philosophy. You start with beauty, and you order them to like beautiful things, yes, to desire to, to encounter beautiful things, to dislike the ugly things, because if you do that, you've opened their mind. You see, if affectivity is ordered, then reason can be so much more ordered, and the will then automatically is also ordered. Yeah? I think Hildebrand is huge on this. Beauty as, you know, probably the most powerful way to access truth and the good. I think that he speaks deeply and richly. I mean, you spoke of his works on music. Um, and it was, it was one of the most intriguing things that I was told as a Catholic, where it was really sort of, you know, the, the, this, this particular bishop was criticizing Catholic education and said, you know, the problem is, is that we focus on reason, so we make them go to universities, we make them study theology, moral theology, etc. We also focus on um, the, the will, so we teach them, right, the law, and we teach them how to live an ethical life, but we completely ignore beauty. Look at our liturgies, look at our churches, yes, even here on campus. Um, <laughs> you know, our gym looks more like the church. I did not say this. <laughs> but so in any case, the point simply being, I think that Hildebrand, quickly, let's move on, that Hildebrand is very, very, very emphatic about this. So, how reason and how will cooperate with the heart, how they're important and essential for the ordering of the heart. Yes? And, um, I think because I, I realize that it's been, it, I've, I've been talking for a while, I'm really sorry about that, but it was just simply to give a deeper analysis. And the final thing is simply because it had been raised yesterday by two people, Dr. Federico and also by Maria, this gift, you know, where he says metaphysically there's a kind of implication and there's a kind of a lesson to be learned from affectivity, and that is that the deepest and somehow the truest part, the most intimate part of ourself, if it's in the heart, there's this gift character, these highest spiritual affections, you know, where we're so surprised. We receive them in a kind of a, wow, why do I love, you know, or I love so much, or I'm able to forgive, you know, despite this. I mean, and there's this, there's this moment he says that if you, I mean, I think that if you pursued that more and you would find that throughout the rest of his philosophy where you could really investigate and you could see, you know, that, that stance to, with reason and with will, it's far easier to control things. It's far easier to sort of have, you know, to be in possession of them or to, to control them per se. And so it could lead to this maybe conception also the human person that we're in control and that is to be a human person. But with, with the heart, we experience this sort of, you know, we are also overtaken. It is something that is, that is presented to us, present as a gift, you know, it has this gift character. And so I think that, again, tying in with the other things, 
um, that this could be in the heart. So certainly nothing that will go over easily, I think, especially nowadays. Like it's, there, there's a lot there, and, and hence I spent so much time trying to work out certain distinctions because I think if they're not understood, then you can so easily miss or kind of discard Hildebrand as, oh, you know, come now, um, really? It, 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 because we have such, I think, also a, a false sense of, of the affections and of the heart. So I don't know what we should do now. It's 10 o'clock. Do we go to 10.10? So we can have discussion for a few minutes, and then we'll see, and possibly have the second presentation, and then really have a discussion contrasting the two authors, because they are so beautifully sort of parts that you can complement, parts that, you, that, that they sort of speak to each other in very different ways. Um, so... Is there anything that hasn't been understood? Is there anything that that uh, strikes you or that you have real issues with that you would like to raise? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that I'm, I'm just having a hard time kind of understanding von Hillebrand's like total overall project because it seems not just a revolutionary understanding of the human person, but for example, the idea of virtue has since Plato at least been this idea that. You know, we have these emotions and we have these desires, and reason manages and controls them. You know, that's sort of the boss there. And also, political theory, up until, you know, sort of modern world, is the idea that we have this sort of authority in the home, the authority of the king or whoever it might be, some authority who manages and orders sort of the community through prudence or a kingly prudence, as Aquinas would say. And it seems like this is part of a tradition, and you mentioned Hume, I mean, when I read this, I wrote that down, Hume, and a romantic tradition where it's trying to revolt against that, like, at every level, so no longer is reason the king of the heart, or, excuse me, the king of the soul, no longer is the king there, it's sort of part of that, I'm not saying that von Hildebrand is like Percy Shelley or some, something like that, but like, there is this, it just seems like Maybe I'm not like grasping what he's doing exactly there because it seems to place emotions at the center of ourselves is contrary to the idea of civilization in general prior to him. So I think, okay, so first of all, I would like to say that I do think that Hilderman is, and this is a danger for philosophers, that none of us, I think, will ever escape fully. But especially when we find a deficiency or when we find a lack, yes, the danger is to go too heavily into or to focus too much on what we're trying to say and then to forget or to neglect maybe other dimensions. And I think he does this with the will, for example. Like I think he, he does tend to go so heavy on the affectivity that he neglects sort of um, his development of the will and the importance of that. Because he sees a deficiency, I think, in the tradition or he sees a deficiency in the understanding of affectivity. So I would say I think that's a very legitimate and justified criticism to Hildebrand, but that one could, in the spirit of Hildebrand, really work out. Um, one could not rewrite Hildebrand, but one could further develop Hildebrand, yes, with what he says at the very end, and, and also with these intimations that he makes, and one could, one could still find a very ordered and balanced, like it's not so imbalanced that one can't sort of find the balance also in him. Now, I don't think, I think he gives a central position to affectivity, but not an authority to affectivity. So I think the authority, in some sense, still remain with reason and will. In, in, insofar as reason and will still have to help regulate the heart, and the heart 
Of course, I mean, one could argue, and I, one, one could argue, is this a, 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 you know, do I say this because I'm Catholic or because I have a, deep, a deeply religious appreciation of this, or do I say this because on the basis of natural reason alone, leaving that aside, one could say, well, since it is maybe one of the most precious faculties, it is also open to some of the, the, the most grievous sort of deficiencies, yeah? Um, so perhaps one, and, and so hence I think this authoritative role of reason and will is so important and cannot be neglected. And, and personally, I think that that, again, is the crisis of today. Yeah? I, I mean, author, the authority of the faculties or even how they ought to form and, and, and direct each other, I think we overlook that a lot. Yeah? We take them just for what they are. I don't, anyways, I'm going off. I mean, this is another whole debate. But I think that there would be value to exploring that. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's, he would say that affectivity is particularly rich. Yes, it adds a kind of a richness. Okay, so here's, for example, one thing which is surprising. I told you that he entered it through the Sacred Heart tradition. Very intriguing to me, and very intriguing, I think, as a Catholic, is that he hardly ever speaks of the dark night of the soul. Now, in the dark night of the soul, love is really propelled by the will. Yes? This is a moment. But I think that what you can get from Hildebrand is that he would say there's a deficiency in that love. And that is the, 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 that is the cross, or that's what that, that grievance that's experienced at the moment, is that my love is so defective because it's not, it doesn't involve my heart at all right now. There's that darkness. I, I, I don't feel any, any sort of connection or any love. Do you see? So I think he could really have worked that in, but he doesn't. And it would have forced him to look, for example, at the will more. Another thing is, and you heard how romantic he was, but maybe it was his sort of romantic character that he never had this problem. But I mean, marriage, he was married to two women. <laughs> so you would think that he would have had some experience with this. But there are certainly those dry spells also in marriage, do you see? And where, um, you know, I think that he could have developed more that importance of the will to carry at the moments when the heart isn't there and that effective plenitude isn't there. But do you see, he does have room for this idea that the will needs to push the heart into action and that the will can, but through this indirect influence. You see, how the will can kind of jumpstart the heart. Yeah? It, it not immediately can control the heart, but it can push it um, by, by, you know... So, for example, I remember... I mean, to, to make this more concrete or practical, I remember being completely appalled, actually, and very sort of scandalized by a book at a wedding called 365 Ways to Make Love to Your Wife. <laughs> that was not wrapped and on the table, and I tried to hide it, but thought I would have a look at it instead <laughs> because I was wondering if I should throw it away. And it was actually very interesting because it was just simply those indirect ways to kind of foster that affectivity, that can be lost. I mean, affectivity, and that's precisely the problem today, right, is that we, we base ourselves so much just on affectivity, we don't maybe recognize the, the, that you know, value of reason and will and how they can help the affectivity and how important it is. So he certainly does not go into that enough, I think, because he is trying to raise something, you know, so he's, he's almost reacting to in, in some way and hence goes, I think, just so focuses and even maybe goes a little bit extremely into the other direction. Yes, Kevin.
what he says about affection precisely for its implication on virtue, that the virtuous person not only knows the good and does the good, but their affections are ordered uh, towards the good. And I wonder if that, and, and he has this uh, kind of passing comment in his ethics, which I think is ahead of his time when he talks about the importance of virtue and how that's been lost mm -hmm. historically. Uh, and I, I w but I, I wonder if, uh, if, if uh, a framework of virtue would also be helpful in thinking about the affections that in everyday experience, uh, for most of us, we're somewhere in between what Aristotle would call continence and incontinence, where we know the good, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't, uh, and our affections are maybe somewhat ordered towards the good, but not completely. Uh, and where his account of affections is, is more oftentimes, I think, I mean, he has this account of compassion, uh, and so he's aware of the disorder, but he's unfolding the, the beauty of the virtuous person, I think, where their affections are, are, are also ordered towards the good. And I wonder if it would be helpful also to think about, well, for most of us, uh, we're, we're more in that continence and continence state where, where, where our affections aren't always present there. We have these struggles in the, the everyday life of, mm -hmm. of marriage or mm -hmm. whatever the case Now, I think that I would go back to the response that um, John gave yesterday where I would say that, I mean, that is also philosophy, right? I mean, he is trying to sort of, it's the nature of the thing, and hence also, I mean, we do have, you know, it's not, he's not trying to describe the real state, or he's not examining that so much. He's simply saying this is how it ought to be, you know, or this is, this is the, 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 in the ordered state how it is. But, I mean, for us, I think, practically, I mean, this is, this is really what I would take away from Hildebrand is, well, what does that mean? Again, in, in the realm of virtue, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, here, this is one of our greatest tasks in education, right? All around is to develop men and women of virtue. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly can say for myself that affectivity was never, I mean, that that even played into virtue. I mean, that was never something that was, that, 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 I, that I sensed, you know, implicitly it might have been there, but it was not something that was ever addressed, you know? And so... I feel as though um, if we did that, and, and precisely through, I think, the way that he goes about it with beauty, that that's a very powerful way, yeah, because it's so difficult. It's such a tricky realm, and maybe that's why we stay with But so I think that much needs to be done in investigating, sort of on a practical, real level, what that means. Yeah? So I would agree with that, but I think that it could lead to very rich analyses. Um, so let's see, I had first Anna and then sister. Did you say? Yeah, sister? And then go on. Can I just take a step back and then thank you for your presentation. Um, when you just mentioned the dark night, mm -hmm. and I think this is perhaps a good way of going a little deeper into von Hildebrand because of his activity, addressing that this separation from the will and discussing the heart. So if we take Mother Teresa, mm -hmm. who in many years does not have the affectivity towards God, Mm -hmm. It would seem that von Hildebrand is saying, therefore, it is a, a pure act of will, again, with his limited under, with his restriction on the will. Because Combs would also say it's an act of will, and he would say that it is an act of the will. But in that act of the will, Combs would say she loves God. Is von Hildebrand therefore saying that there is no true love of God at that point? So th that's a very good question. 
And I mean, I mean, my my problem is that he didn't look at that, right? Because I think had he looked at that, he would have. I I don't think he ever would have wanted to say that in that case, Mother Teresa doesn't have love. It's but but he almost because of his narrow like development of the will and because of his emphasis on affectivity, that seems to be what he's saying. But I don't think. I mean, you knew the person. I don't think he ever would have wanted to say that. I think that that would be completely contrary to what he wanted to say. But I think that that's precisely the deficiency in Hildebrand is that he just focused so much on affectivity, and therefore kind of underdeveloped that 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 those moments, those real moments, those you know when can love continue. So I think he just he got carried away. That's my that's my understanding of Hildebrand that he got just simply carried away so much with this. Um, and strictly speaking, I mean, strictly from what he has written, I think it would be one could argue it would have to follow that. Therefore, there isn't. A, 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 I mean, it is it is not love in the proper sense of Hildebrand because the affectivity is not there. I think what he would have wanted to say is that it is an imperfect love, it is a deficient love, but not that it is not love at all. Am I representing him correctly, or would would you disagree with what I've said? So the superactuality is definitely yes. No, that's actually an excellent point, Maria. <laughs> so that's true. That because of his notion of superactuality, so that even if in the moment, yes, you don't. Um, I don't think that the notion of superactuality would completely take him out of hot water here, though. But he does have that, of course, notion that super, the superactuality, how it can perdure even in moments when I'm not thinking of it, when I'm not feeling it, yes, at the moment. Personally, I would be dissatisfied on some level in the sense that I, because I do think the will would have had to have been more developed. Um, but I, but I, I think that that's an excellent point, that that really would have helped a lot. So there are three hands that popped up. I don't know who popped up. I think Anna, Kevin maybe first. I, ladies first. I'll start with you, Anna. Simple. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, even with the two being interaction, though those like dry spells that I spoke of, for example, in marriage, I think that he doesn't focus on things like that enough as well. In the dark night, I mean, now there would be, especially also, this would take us beyond a purely philosophical, I think, you know, um, exploration because now we, I mean, we're, 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 there would be many other things that we could take into consideration. You know, how even the dark night is a gift or how it is a grace, but then. I mean, so we could, it would be much richer if we took all of that into consideration. But I think that I would say that even between two persons, Hildebrand doesn't look at this phenomenon enough. But what struck me was simply that the Dark Knight is such a central part within the Catholic faith, and it's so well known also in saints that he loved and knew very well, that he cherished. 
that it's surprising to me that he looked at something like the Sacred Heart tradition and it led him to this rich insight, but that he somehow didn't also at the same time look at something like this that would have so complemented and helped him to even enrich and build out or develop this even more, you know, deeply. Um, That I would certainly agree with, especially with all the distinctions and how he, he really, I think, lays a very good groundwork and then one can really develop that groundwork and take it much further. So I think that, and I think every philosopher does that. No, I mean, there are very few German philosophers who think that they've given us the whole system <laughs> and it is now complete, <laughs> very divine God complex. Um, but I mean, for the most part, philosophers would never, I think, say or claim that, you know, what they've done I mean, it is, it is never finished, you know, and one can always develop it more. And, and, and I think there's much value. I mean, that's something that uh, certainly I think John has been doing that's that so rich is precisely developing Hildebrand further in the spirit of Hildebrand and in dialogue with other thinkers, etc. Robert, you, and then Kevin. Just really quick, because when you talk about love being secret, the way I understood von Hildebrand's super actuals after like, it's not a hidden experience, it's present, it's just kind of in the foreground. So if that's the Um, I don't. I'm not done misunderstanding <coughs> superactual consciousness, but I understood superactual consciousness in von Hildebrand as the, the the experience is present. It's not hidden. It's not subconscious. It's there, but in the background, coloring your psychic experiencing. So if that's the case, in the dark night of the soul, would it just if it's not the affection's not there at all? I mean, I think that's a very good point, is that, that, that it's not as though, actually, there, I would say it even more keenly somehow is on the foreground, always in the dark night, even in Mother Teresa, you know, in her the decades, I mean, shot, that was such a surprise, it's decades that that lasted, but um, with the super actual stands, I'm not sure that that has to be so much in the foreground, I would say that there, I mean, but again, we, 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 we would have to go more into that. Um, it would seem to me there that precisely, I mean, the notion of that is that, again, at moments when it is precisely not in the foreground, but that it still has, per, like it perdures because mm -hmm. it's that stance. Yeah, it involves that sort of fundamental um, kind of attitude that's, that, that, yeah, that, that, that choice. I mean, that, that doesn't have to be sort of present in conscious experience in some sense but that precisely in the dark night of the soul we would find a kind of a presence always and that that's the, 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 the somehow daily and hourly, minutely struggle, right, in the dark night of the soul. Um, so, but that would, be, that would be another discussion. We'd have to go more into the superactual stances, which I think I'll actually, I mean, let's do two more minutes and we'll take a coffee break and then 
perhaps we'll go to the next presentation and then because we'll have time in the afternoon also to to continue on the the, the discussion I have two more hands you have two minutes both of you sit now <laughs> Kevin yeah. That's so interesting. And I now, now see, and I really appreciate that because I've, I've always sort of looked at now the dark night more as, you know, from that aspect of that it's precisely the will constantly having to drive because the affections aren't there. You know, it's precisely because I don't somehow feel that connection or I'm not effectively engaged that I'm having to, you know, really rigorously through discipline in the will. But I mean, I see that sense in which you would say that longing is also. So that it would be false to say that the affectivity is completely absent. Um, but it certainly wouldn't be the affectivity of love in the sense, or, you know, that, that affective love would not be there. Um, in, in the sense, I think, that Hildebrand's talking about it. But that's interesting. I, I've not thought of, yeah, I think I've, I've, now we would have to talk about the dark night a little bit more. Because I certainly was sort of approaching it, I think, from a different angle. Suzanne? My, my question is in regarding to your last point about how to order our affections. And we, several of us were actually having a conversation with dinner precisely about beauty and exposure to beauty. And so my, would, did uh, von Hildebrand reflect on uh, St. Ignatius, his, his experience of when he was healing from his surgery and he was reading all the books and he found himself, I mean to me, it, 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 it expressed spiritually, but he was feeling anxiety and distress and emotions about being disturbed after he read things and then when he started to read about the saints and the goodness that he felt peace and he felt joy and he felt calm and so uh, So I don't, uh, no, to my knowledge, he had he didn't actually talk ever about Saint Ignatius's experience. I, I at least I'm not aware of any passage where he does this. Um, but I mean, I, it, w it would seem to me that in that in that case, you know, the, again, I mean, when it, it, there is an experience that Ignatius has, you know, of that of that peace or of that harmony. Now. Um, one would have to go now more into, you know, which part strictly are the affections here, you know, because it, it's a kind of a, 
I mean, this inner anxiety, etc. I mean, where we'd have to sort of sort through now more. The, I think that particular example and and figure out what affectivity is proper or how that's been ordered through. But I mean, the encounter. I think that maybe what we could focus on is that Hildebrand is very clear always and very emphatic about that real experience of things, and that somehow he is very optimistic. I, um, perhaps overly optimistic. I think Aristotle might be a little bit more realistic or pessimistic, I don't know, about um, the fact that there is a kind of a kindred, that there's a kinship that we experience deep down so that we will recognize or we can recognize. You know, As much as he speaks of blindness and as much as he speaks of um, how difficult it is, I do think that he's somebody who always promotes this um, connection that that on this that on this level deep within us that that it touches us and that it can you know draw us out. Whereas Aristotle tends, I think, more to say, well, once they've been damaged, then <laughs> I don't know. But it might be because Hildebrand believes more also in grace. You know, he's certainly very very deeply aware of more than just the natural level going on. So one would have to discuss that more as well. Yes, John, Henry. <laughs> to distinguish between, yes. If I could insert one thing, one one concept that is so deep in Hildebrand is this notion of fundamental moral attitudes and stances and how they dispose us to being receptive to knowledge mm-hmm. and truth. It seems to me that, that something very Hildebrandian to say on this, um, with regard to the Dark Knight, is that an experience like that itself prepares the ground for a richer response when the value, for example, of God's return. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of from from a kind of from the point of view. of and he always speaks of human life in Scottish Vienna, this sort of journey that we're on. This kind of, um, it's kind of a, a process or, or a, a kind of cycle of sorts. It's an upward spiral. I think if, if you participate in grace in the sense that you go between these deep encounters with things and you have these deep responses, and then you have these periods of aridity. And then, in some sense, if you are um, if you are engaging your will mm-hmm. and living deeply, um, that precisely through that kind of uh, removal of the good that you put to that you become to respond more deeply. Um, that, that seems to be somehow very Hildebrandian, I think, mm-hmm. to take it because there's such a deep sense of the of the character of the person mm-hmm. uh, and the role that the person's character plays in being receptive and responsive. So mm-hmm. That's I, certainly I, true. I, mean, I agree with you completely that he does, he, there's, there's a kind of overall sort of optimism in his view of things and a self, there's, there's something very festive about everything in his thought. But at the same time, I think. Um, I suspect also that he suffered a lot more than maybe is uh, reflected in his work. You know, and that, that's also, that, by the way, speaking of stances, that, that, that I've always admired that about him. There's a, there's a way in which you have the feeling that he, uh, he lived so much, he wanted so much to give the response to the good and the beautiful that even in moments of personal sorrow, like in the struggle with Nazism, when everything was taken away from him, um, he could still respond to mm-hmm. good, good things and beautiful so maybe there's a, there's, there would be some room for a discussion of these of this concept of mm-hmm. moral attitudes mm-hmm. basic stances and how this disposes us. Mm-hmm. I would certainly make, yes. So there you go. On that note, however, let's take a coffee break because now you've given us the perfect moment to kind of leave it hanging and then pick it up after Jules' presentation.